Welcome to Season 2 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed Inspiration to Publication, Episode 36, Cascadia. Today, we are joined by Randy Flynn, the designer of Cascadia from Flat Out Games. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Danielle. Of course. Now, to get us started, the first question, of course, is always, how did you get into the gaming industry? <laughs> um, yeah, my getting into the gaming industry kind of started with uh, when I met my partner, Marlene, and her son, Julian. Um, pretty shortly after that, I uh, got into playing games with them. It had been There had been a couple things that caught my eye, and Julian played I think a little chess at the time in Castle Panic. And I thought, oh, this will be a great thing. Um, we ended up starting with Carcassonne and Catan. Uh, went really, really well. We had a lot of fun Stables. doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a pretty good place to start. And it kind of went from there. Uh, first few years, it was a little up and down as to how much we played. Um, kind of came and went. We'd play heavily games for a while, then a little lighter. Then um, got more into it a you know, maybe a year or two in. And at that time, I remember playing like, by that we were playing Ticket to Ride and Seven Wonders and some other staples. I'm sure you'd recognize King of Tokyo was a very, very yep. uh, strong one for Julian. Um, and I started designing games at that time. Like somewhere in there, I got in my head, I could do this. And I was just me in my office, never thinking about whether or not anyone else would see this outside of the house and spent, you know, a good bit of time designing a Civ building game. And that kind of went for a while. I, I made good progress, but I was using no real online or other resources, really just relying on myself and the games that I had played. And I slowed down after a while. I put it, put it down, I'd pick it back up. And it kind of went on that way for a couple of years. And then just one year, I decided to get serious about it, right? Right around the end of the year, maybe the beginning of the year, I think right before the end of the year. And I just got serious about it. And I started spending like nights, you know, like two or three hours in my office at night, just solo testing this game and fleshing it out, uh, actually getting, you know, buying more kind of, you know, raw materials I could use, still not using really many online resources yet. And I got it to a point where it was playable. Um, I forced <laughs> forced my friends and family to play it. Uh, the first completed game took six hours. And Wait, like six hours to play? Literally. I, I think that oh. might have included Teach. Those are nice probably friends. Did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. That, and that game almost ended about the two-hour mark. I said, well, we'll play like, you know, one more round and, and then be done unless folks want to go on. But somewhere in there, it started to hook them in. And they, you know, yes, they were there. Okay. And, you know, we'd all had a couple beers. We were enjoying it. And somehow it, it went from, you know, I were playtesting this to we're playing it. And that just managed to hook them for the next several hours. And we went through and actually finished the game, which was amazing. Um, and I was like, well, I'm glad we played a game. I'm glad people were able to spend this much time on it. And boy, does it need to be shorter. 
<laughs> so yeah but yeah. i mean they you finished that's honestly impressive it was it was and it was a lot it was a lot of fun to do and it was it was a lot of fun to 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 play and play test which i you know was good i learned that i enjoyed all of those things like i didn't just enjoy sitting in my office designing a game i actually enjoyed playing it i actually enjoyed playing it with others and going through the play testing process and watching people and seeing what they did and asking them questions i i enjoyed all of that so it was it was all all a pretty good sign (laughs) no that's awesome so then we're going to shoot forward and now you have this game it's published it's called cascadia for anyone who hasn't played it would you mind kind of going over the rules sure uh the basics of cascadia are you are building an environment out of habitat tiles or little hex tiles that you're going to draw as well as animal tokens that sit on top of those uh, habitat tiles and you're going to go through just 20 turns through the game, clockwise around the table, two to four players. Or you can play solo as well. And every time you take a, a habitat tile and uh, an animal token, you take them together. Like they're, they're paired, so you kind of have to make a choice about which of the pairs you want something might be good for you and the other part might be rougher for you and you play both of them immediately into your into your habitat you you add the habitat tile into your environment just by placing it next to any existing habitat tile and then the the animal token needs to go on an open space and every habitat tile will take one animal throughout the game although the options it has may be one two or three different animals but once you place an animal on habitat tile it, it never moves and you do that 20 times but why are you doing it um, you're doing it in order to make patterns with the animals on top of the habitat tiles. So the way that kind of works is the habitat tiles give you options and you're scoring at the end both for your patterns on the animals and the arrangement of your habitats, which are more based on just size of you know kind of contiguous area. So you sort of have two puzzles you're, you're playing at once and trying to combine together to maximize your, your score. So some plays are better for your habitat, some are better for your animals. And I think a key thing about it is there are five animals and five habitats, and each of the five animals scores in a different way. Um, and in fact, each of the five animals has... Um, four or five different cards that can vary them as well, but they all sort of have a theme in the pattern that you want to produce. Um, so like salmon is probably the most thematic of them. Uh, they come in runs, which are irregular lines. And so you need to get them in that. The longer your run is, the, the more points it will score. Um, so those, those are the basics. Um, maybe one mm-hmm. other thing of import is there are nature tokens that you can earn by, by playing animals to the, the toughest tiles, uh, which we call keystone tiles. When you do that, you get a nature token, and nature token's worth a point at the end of the game if you hold on to it. But more importantly, there are ways to use it in the game to improve your draft situation that, you know, I come in there. I don't like this combination of habitat tiles and animals. So you can do things like decide to wipe some of them by paying a nature token and replace them and see what comes up. Or I told you you had to make those choose those pairs. You can also spend one of those to say, I'm going to ignore the pairs. I'm going to take one of each, whichever ones I want, but I'll spend a nature token to do that. So you have to give up some points. Hopefully you're going to do that to score more points. That's so cool. How did you decide like which animals to put into the game? <laughs> so when I first came home 
and started designing the game, I had both animals and plants at the very beginning. I'm not sure the plants even lasted to the point that I had real scoring. Like I, I kind of went to, okay, we're just doing animals. I don't see any point in having plants and animals. And early on, they were just like, you know, the enigmatic animals you expect in games. There was alligators, there were bears, there were mountain lions. I might not have been mountain lions early on. And I remember that I had four at one point. I think originally the hawks were probably eagles um, and the salmon were just fish. I remember a gorilla was, was when I went from four to five, the gorilla was the one that added. So you can see there's not really a lot of cohesion between the kind of animals there were. Um, yeah. By the time it started coming together, I started shifting a, li a little bit. And when I started talking with Flat Out, I like said right away, if, if we're going to do this game together, I said, I think it should be Pacific Northwest. And they were like in complete agreement from the start that, yeah, it should be Pacific Northwest themed. Why and we was should that the one that you pushed for, though? Well, I live in Seattle. It's what I'm surrounded oh, okay. by. I've spent time <laughs> hiking and camping, backpacking in the mountains around here. And uh, so – and. Flat out in most of Flat Out lives in Cascadia. Not quite all. Rob's up north to the east, but um, most of us live in, in Cascadia, and they were actually all in Seattle, um, other than Rob at the time that I that I signed the game with them. So it was thematic. Uh, it fit with where I lived, and it kind of fit with the whole team. So everyone was really on board with it quickly, and and so we shifted that we shifted the animals at that time. I think they saw two shifts. Because I think cougars were in it on the first one, and then they got replaced by elk because we couldn't make it, couldn't make it work thematically as well. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's really cool because I was always kind of curious. I wasn't sure if it was because of the art style or the animals, or I mean, this makes sense. It's the location most of you live. Yeah. <laughs> Very awesome. And then I know with the nature tokens, you had chosen like pine cones. Why did you go with a more like naturey versus animal for those? <laughs> Uh, well, we definitely we didn't really consider animals, and I think it's just because it's to keep you know the separate things separate, right? So we've got the habitat tiles, we've got the animals, and then this was something else that had a different purpose. Um, we talked about that one probably more than anything else. Like, like the the habitats we chose, I think they were the habitats I had when we signed the game, or very close. So it might have been some a couple of naming choices like prairie, um, but. The, the nature tokens, one, it came about after I signed the game with Flatout. It did not exist when we signed it. This was part of the development okay. process. Cool. And then two, we just called them nature tokens or something for quite a while. Um, and at one point, I was strongly pushing for us to come up with um, like a wind, sun, you know, like a power of nature kind of thing. And I don't know. We, we, we threw a bunch of those ideas at the wall. We chewed them over and, and none in the end really sang to us or we couldn't quite envision what the, like the graphic design and the art would look like with this. And so we, uh, we decided to go with something, something more just of nature and, um, you know, the Douglas firs, of course, you know, hugely important uh, tree out here. And so it was, it was great to have those, uh, you know, the, the cones from the Douglas fir put in the games just to fit thematically in that way, even if they don't seem like particularly powerful items. <laughs> no, but I mean, there was a thought put into it, which is really cool. I always like seeing how the artwork can affect the game or just the theme of it. 
like your theme of like overpopulation when you have all of the same or whatever and you can like wipe it anytime there's too many of the same animals. I thought that was really a cute, nice touch to it. Was that like your idea or was that a development thing? It definitely happened during development. I I did not call it overpopulation before it was signed. But, you know, I I worked on the collab on the game, so I put in a lot of hours in the development as well. Um, Sometimes I can remember exactly where things came from or when they started. And other times I'm like, I'm not so sure. I doubt overpopulation was my word, um, but I honestly don't know. (laughs) No worries. That's so cool, though. Um, So what initially inspired this design, like the spatial puzzle? So I had made a note in my design notebook, I think uh, my electronic one, a couple of years before, maybe a year before this, I really started the design. And the, the note was really simple. It's a, maybe five or six lines about having a double tile laying game where you had two layers and the first layer kind of drove what was possible in the second layer. And then I threw out some ideas for themes. I know city building was was a big one in there. Um, I can't remember the others, but I had two or three possible themes. But that was it. It was just a design idea. My notebook is filled with these things. Um, and then Marlene and I were on vacation in Hawaii and that was when Peter McPherson's Tiny Towns was released. And we actually went to the store there in Hawaii and bought the game and took it back to where we were staying. And we played it like over two days, six times, I think, and wow. really enjoyed the game. That was that was great. Was, we, we enjoyed that. We also played Orbis, I think, was the other game we bought, which we just played again the other night. Also a fantastic game. Um, but on the flight back, I was flipping through that notebook and stumbled across that little note. And what really happened was the scoring cards in tiny towns were in my mind and I saw that. And that's when I went, okay, if I can combine kind of the variable scoring idea of tiny towns, you know, with this idea in some bigger way, I think there's something interesting here. And I made a lot of notes on that flight. Don't remember what all the ideas were and how much, you know, how many of those ideas stayed in the game. But as soon as I got back, it became kind of my focus, uh, you know, to work on it. And so, yeah, you can, you can definitely see, you know, bits of tiny towns in there. Although it's funny because tiny towns, when you know what you're doing is a very aggressive game. Um, whereas Cascadia is pretty much the opposite. It's very difficult to really focus on, oh, I'm going to mess up my competitors. Like, okay, yeah. you, you go do that. You're probably going to lose as many points as you cause them to lose. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's fair. Yeah. I, I love Tiny Towns. I actually was just playtesting with Peter literally oh, yeah? before this interview. So funny enough, <laughs> I'll go. make sure that you mentioned him <laughs> and let cool. him know. <laughs> yep. And Peter, Peter um, playtested Cascadia a couple times along the way too at conventions. So he got to see it in two very different spots i think so oh that's so cool yeah. i love when that happens like full circle <laughs> yeah it's nice so how how did playtesting go for you like what did it look like so you know first thing is i when the game is right i do a lot of solo testing it's, that's a word i use i don't hear it used a lot by others but that's just me typically in my office maybe a the cafeteria um you know running usually a multiplayer game where i'm playing both players trying to work on this with newer games i should be able to like go for the solo mode first wouldn't this be easier but never seemed to make that happen so i'm playing two or three players depending on the game 
And so with Cascadia, I did a lot of that. I think with Cascadia, I quickly realized, yep, two players is the way to go. It just gives me enough, you know, back and forth, but it doesn't fry my brain trying to go between three different, you know, boards. So I did, definitely did a lot of that. And then I don't remember, I'm sure I played it here um, at the house with the, with family and, and friends, you know, a few times, but Seattle has a very great organization, Playtest Northwest. Um, which I think many people probably have heard of. And it's just a local playtesting org. They run events at cons. They run events at game stores, at game pubs, and other places. Um, my first public design, um, Tabriz, w- was also playtested a lot through Playtest Northwest, as was Cascadia. Uh, I can very distinctly remember playtesting like at Mox Boarding House in Ballard here in Seattle, for example, having some great playtests there. So I, it definitely got a lot of playtests in with, with a variety of audiences, which, which is really just incredibly helpful, of course. But it's really nice to have that sort of organization that brings people in um, who, who are just interested in playtesting. And so you get a much, I think, a much wider variety of people playing your game, which is just incredibly helpful. I'm not going to lie. That makes me pretty jealous. I'm not <laughs> near like a main pocket. Everything is like hour and a half to two and a half hours away now. So. So you said you mentioned the solo mode. Did you end up creating it or was that something that a different designer came in or a developer? How was the solo mode created? So this, the solo mode was created during the, the collab, during the, the development process. And really the designer of the solo mode is, is Sean Stankiewicz. Um, we all, you know, developed it and, and massaged it and, you know, ended up playing a lot of it since it's a great way to play test things since the solo mode doesn't play, you know, dramatically different than the game itself. But, uh, so yeah, I, I had not, I had not designed that. Um, and honestly, I, didn't really think too much about solo modes at that point. Uh, I didn't play a lot of solo games. I still don't when I play solo. Even if I play solo board games, I prefer electronic implementations um, rather than getting the box out and sitting down. Like when I do that, I want there to be other people, I think, um, or I want to be working on something. But um, uh, so I didn't really have a lot of focus on solo modes, but solo modes already were becoming more and more important. And they're very important for Kickstarter games uh, because there's just an audience for them that you bring in that you just don't get in crowdfunding if you don't have it. And two, we started uh, after we were starting to develop and work on Cascadia, we had a pandemic and suddenly mm. we thought, hey, this yep. is probably going to be even more important, you know, for people to see that it's there and understand it. So, um, you know, Calico, of course, the game flat out did first, you know, had a had a solo mode that was that was pretty popular. And I kind of think Cascadia's might even be more popular amongst uh, the Cascadian buyers. So how did you end up finding them as your publisher? Uh, the folks from Flat Out Games, uh, Molly and Rob in particular, were, you know, were in Seattle at the time and, um, and Sean still is. And we we meet we had design meetups that we were a, a part of like i i met sean uh he was actually one of the the very first game design meetup i ever went to was myself uh sean and uh, one other person um so and then you know I, i've met with sean a bunch since then so sean had seen the game through those and played it a few times here and there um as well as as pulling molly in one night to, to play tested at blue highway games and so i i had already known them in that and then um you know they pretty much came to me and said hey what do you think of doing this with flat out um now they had not published a game at that point this was you know <laughs> Calico had not even gone to Kickstarter. Um, so that was, you know, it was a bit of a leap of faith there at that point. It turned out to be a, a very good one. <laughs> um, excellent one. But yeah, 
I know you've mentioned the collab, but I know that that's like a thing that they use. Would you mind explaining to anyone listening what collab means as far as like your game and the process and all that? Right. So when, when flat out, you know, decides to work on a game, they create, you know, a collab. So for every game, the collab is, uh, is different, but that just means it's a different set of people. Uh, Molly, Rob, and Sean are always in it. Um, I think Dylan Mangini has been in all of them. Uh, he's does, you know, the graphic, a lot of the graphic design work for them, um, and other things, but he's always part of that. And then the designer, I think every game so far, the game designer has been part of the collab. It's not necessarily a requirement, but everyone typically wants to be. It's a great process. Um, and so you, and then perhaps other people as well. You know, Kevin Russ, designer of Calico, was on the Cascadia collab and did playtesting and development, as well as a lot of rulebook work and graphic design work related to the rulebook, for example. Um, so you know, there, there's just a number of different bits of work that have to happen and they pull people together, you know, to, to do that work. And so for me being on the collab, it was important that I be very focused on development. Like I, like I, I wanted to do a lot of work on the development. Um, I didn't really have a lot of interest in some of the other, other things or skills (laughs) and some of the other things, which, you know, worked out well. So I, that's why I did a lot of development work on Cascadia, probably did more development work on Cascadia than I'll ever do on a game of my own design (laughs) is my guess. That's so cool. It's always interesting to see those different minds coming together. And I feel like that probably helped make playtesting easier when you can kind of split up the load. Yeah, it's it's really true. I, I definitely, you know, before the pandemic, I was doing pl- playtesting with Playtest Northwest and at cons and other events. And so I was able to do a lot of that myself. And so it's just one one person from the group doing that while the others were focused on other things. And then especially as we moved to virtual, uh, it became the playtesting becomes a lot easier because you have your own built in audience, at least for a certain kind of playtesting. Um, and so, you know, you could just all, you know, jump on tabletop simulator, your favorite, you know, virtual platform and that you have it on and go through and, and do some play tests. Um, and that's, yeah, you have a nice, nice audience with the collab to do that. Very true. And when did Beth Sobel end up getting added on as illustrator? Cause I know everyone's like so obsessed with wingspan. Honestly, it's been my favorite game before it was cool. And she is the illustrator and you ended up also having her as an illustrator for your game. Well, Beth had, had been the illustrator for Calico. So I, that's not, you know, they, I don't know how that happened, but it's not my story to tell anyway. They, they, she, and so when I signed the game with Flatout, I, I kind of paused and said, this does mean Beth will be doing the art, please, right? And they're like, well, if we have anything to say about it, yes. Um, so uh, I think as soon as it was signed, they, they talked to Beth and Beth, Beth messaged me right away saying, I'm excited to get to work on your game because I had met Beth yeah. a few times at, at the local, you know, she lives up north a bit, but she comes down to Seattle for certain conventions and stuff. So I had met her a few times. Um, so yeah, it was just, uh, yeah, I, so there was never any discussion of who else would do the art. It was just, if Beth's willing to do it, Beth will be doing it. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I'm yeah. not going to lie. That's, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh man. And I mean, as far as it's like, it's a spatial puzzle. Is that something that you enjoyed before this or was it just, you're one of those designers that wants to tick off and check off like a bunch of different mechanics and things. I've definitely been more of a, yeah, try different mechanics. So I haven't designed this game right now. I'm, I'm currently working on an area majority game. Like I've never done an area majority or area plurality or any of those kind of related mechanics. And uh, I'm just fascinated by, by it. It's not even one of my favorite game types. There, there are a few that I like and many I don't. Um, 
but I'm, I'm just, you know, diving in, trying to learn the ins and outs of what works and what doesn't and, uh, what is different from what I've seen that can, that can still work. And that's often what I'm trying to do is I, I look at something and say, Oh, I really like how this game's work, or maybe I don't, but a lot of people do. And I come at it was like, well, how can I twist it? How can I turn it a bit? Like, I'm not trying to, I'm not typically trying to reinvent things entirely. You know, there are games that come out that kind of, you know, blow you away, even if they're, you know, in a certain environment like the crew. Well, it's a trick taking game. It's a cooperative game. We've seen all these things before, but that's a pretty revolutionary take on that. Um, and I have, you know, I don't, sure, I would love to do that, but it's not really what I shoot for. It's like, let's let's just twist it enough. Let's give it something different and in giving it something different. And of course, then the focus being on the, the, the whole experience, because it doesn't matter if you're unique and cool and different. If people just want to play your game once or twice and be done or, you know, or they, or they just say, hey, yeah, that's cool. And then they walk away. Uh, so it, it, I end up focusing on experience. But yeah, my I told you my first the design that I play tested with friends and family was a Civ building game. Uh, the design I created after that, which is the one I first publicly play tested, I actually decided to do specifically because I knew that the Civ building game was going to be big. And if I was going to get a game signed as someone who had never had a game signed, I probably needed something simpler. And so that's Tabriz, which uh, will be going to crowdfunding this year. And that's a worker movement uh kind of contract fulfillment game um so it was very different from what i did before um okay. yeah and i'm working on uh i've been working on a railroad game a pickup and deliver railroad building game with aaron mesburn designer of overboss and verdant that is that has been a lot of fun to do again just twisting in mechanics that I, that I, in this case i actually really like and trying to figure out how we can you know do something a little different or capture a different audience that doesn't you know enjoy railroad games typically as much um and so it's, that's been a lot of fun i'm not gonna lie i'm one of those people that tend to joke i'm like there's so many train games why are there so many train games <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not an unreasonable reaction there are a lot of train games there are a lot of people that love trains um, yeah, I didn't realize that until I got into the gaming industry, how big the train loving it. Like, I mean, I watched Big Bang Theory and Sheldon's obsession with trains was kind of like my level of nerd and train until I entered the gaming industry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So what did you find special about this design, though, like Cascadia in general? Like, what was that little twist that really made it what it is? Well, I you know, it, it's it's interesting in Cascadia. I'm not sure I would point to one thing. It, it had a lot to do with what the overall experience was like, and it had a lot to do with being a game that did not have a lot of take. That um, pattern building was one of the key things that obviously from the beginning was was in there, um, and I all. Almost always wanted that little bit of uh, some people have referred to it as like a Zen feeling when you play the game, and especially solo, I think people feel that they just get very relaxed and they're making their moves. You know, the, the mental load is interesting but not overwhelming. Uh, the first play test I ever did of Cascadia, uh, and I'm now remembering this in particular, it was very mellow. Um, like I would say way too mellow, although one of the players really liked that about it. He just, he was just like, I just felt like I was totally zoned out. <laughs> um, and, uh, so, but that was always, you know, that was always a part of that. Um, because I'd had, you know, other games where the player interaction was light to medium. Uh, and I, and this one, I was like, you know, I want this to be 
like light to, to very little, you know, is, is what I want. I didn't want it to be zero, but I want it to be light to very, very, very little. And so to me, it really is really just a bringing together of all those things, um, you know, in a way that was just a little bit different. And I don't, I don't think anyone considers Cascadia like some big evolution um, in gaming in any way. I think it's just a, a very nice combination of existing mechanics in a way that isn't quite seen before and as a whole product just fits together, you know, really, really well. And um, honestly, a lot of that I, I, I have to go back and credit flat out for, um, you know, just the way the game feels, the way it's put together. Yeah. A lot of the things that go through that, you know, really came about through the collab and the stuff they had learned from Calico and, and the way that they worked. And when people compare it to Calico, I kind of laugh because I was like, you know, I saw Calico before I designed Cascadia. I play tested it maybe once and that's it. Like I wasn't actually super familiar with Calico. Um, and so it's funny when people say, oh yeah, the next step after Calico is like, well, they're wrong and they're right. They're wrong because the influence on me was pretty minimal, but flat out developed both games. And so, you know, pieces of the the DNA of what they learned in Calico, et cetera, certainly, you know, have seeped, seeped into the I feel like the they're very much known for those like puzzly games. Like everything yeah. they've designed or that they've held publish has been very much aligned with puzzles. Yeah, yeah, it really, it really, really has. I think uh, those are often the sort of games that they that a bunch of them like, but also that they're very good at understanding. Honestly, if you're good at, just keep going with it. I remember <laughs> when Point Salad came out, I was I was obsessed with it. <laughs> Point Salad was was yeah. Point Salad is an amazing game, and I remember that one. I do remember playtesting a bunch. You know, it, it evolved from you know here to there, a little complexity of this, a little complexity of that, to stripping it down. And once and it was just so strange when they stripped a bunch of this down and came up with one or two key things. It was all of a sudden it was like it's done. Like you went from like is this a good game here and there to boom. You know, it was just like it, it was. Uh, the the simplicity of Point Salad while still being just like this awesome game is just is so impressive to me honestly i strive to do that but like <laughs> one or two action game that just it's like a brain burner but not a brain burner like almost their brain enjoyer i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that is is yes that is the goal yeah no i think it's a very 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 good goal to have uh, a lot of people uh enjoy those kind of games and i mean i think it's you and i talking i think you and i both enjoy them very much so oh i love puzzle games anything that's puzzly just hand it over i don't even care if i end up hating it after two hours or something <laughs> like i'm a big puzzle person big fan how long in total do you think it went, though, from that initial inspiration in Hawaii and like jotting those notes down to it coming out after the Kickstarter succeeded and it made it to backers? So first, this will almost surely be the shortest time period I ever see for that, because um, I started designing the game the beginning of April. Um, I remember I was sort of pitching it the beginning of two months later at the beginning of june um and then i wow. was talking to flat out about it in july and i decided to sign with them before gen con um so basically you know what in about three and a half months it went from hey i have an idea for how to put a game together to i have it signed um and then you know, the Kickstarter would have been uh, a year plus later um, in the fall. Sure. And then it, it delivered, you know, the next year kind of, kind of summary. So uh, 
you know, I guess what <laughs> all that math was. It was really in the end still a, a couple of years, but like two to yeah. two and a half, maybe. Yeah, two and a half, I guess, is, is probably about right. A little less. I mean, still, that's still pretty quick for like idea to getting it signed, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Very impressive. I mean, the game turned out amazing. Like, I don't know what you think or if you know the numbers, but <laughs> like, how do you think the game's doing now that people have it? I've been, you know, very pleased with it. I I did not necessarily have a ton of expectations. I, d- I didn't know what to expect. Um, so, you know, both in how much I see the game online, um, how much um, I see now people talking about, yeah, I went to this convention and Cascadia was being played on five tables um, to, you know, knowing that it's, it's already sold quite well. It's already on its second print run here and in Spain, maybe in some other places. I don't know. Um, so from my perspective, it's doing you know better than I ever could have expected. So <laughs> that's so amazing. Congratulations, especially in Spain. Like it's in other countries. Awesome. <laughs> it's in at least sixteen languages. Uh, wow. Maybe. Well, maybe I guess your more. game is really well made for that, since it is like mostly art and icons. It's really just the goal cards, right, and the rule yeah. book. Yeah, you really just have to do the the cards and the the rule book. You have to localize to the to the languages, um, and you know, th- and this is an area where Flatout's partnership with AEG really comes into play because AEG is the one that works with those other companies uh, to get that that done and how many they go. And Calico also is in like I don't know, it's more than twenty languages. Cal- you know, Calico's in quite a few, um, so it's worked out pretty well and. It's a good variety of, of countries, too. I mean, many of the European countries have, have a version. Several, several of the Asian countries you know, have a version. Um, it's, it's actually in, in quite a few different places, which, which, is, which is really nice. Um, just, just hit Dutch a couple of days ago. Just, just released the stores a couple of days ago. I, I have uh, my sister and her family live in uh, Amsterdam. So it's nice to see it show up on their doorstep. They already have, they already have, they already have an English copy, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any idea how that partnership started between AEG and flat out? I know it just came from, you know, one-on-one discussions with them, but I'm no, I don't, I don't know a lot about that. So yeah, no worries. I mean, Hey, this is great. (laughs) I'm sure your game is going to just keep appearing in other countries, which is cool because your game is like about the Pacific Northwest. So now other countries are kind of learning a little bit about that area and the animals that live there. Yeah, that's true. We had discussions about that in the beginning of especially naming it Cascadia and and really pushing towards that theme. It's like, well, even in the United States, how many people are going to know where Cascadia is? And we're all kind of like, I don't know. And in the end, I think several of us said, it doesn't matter. It's one word. It's easy to pronounce. It'll be great art. I don't think it matters. And yeah, I don't know. I'm sure more people know where Cascadia is now than did before. So that's good. (laughs) Definitely. Honestly, that's one of my favorite ways to learn or any kind of game that teaches me something. So I think that's a good thing, personally. You mentioned Wingspan earlier. Um, you know, uh, they put out a, a book, the artists put out a book with the art and, you know, basically a little mini encyclopedia about the birds. And I got that, I like pre-ordered it and got it from a local bookstore. And like within a couple of weeks, I learned that, oh, there's all these little birds around that I assumed were some name I would know. Are they sparrows? Like just some common bird name. And I went to that book and looked through, I was like, yeah, what's the chances it in, it's in here? There's a ton of birds. Look through and there it is, Junko. That's the bird. 
we're inundated with juncos. And I read, you know, about, you know, its habitat <laughs> and all that. And it, it all made sense. They're, they're, they're a bird that gets around a lot, especially on the West Coast, I think. But I mean, like they're probably the bird I see more than any other out here. And before that, I don't think I noticed them. And now I'm all the time saying, oh, yep, there's a bunch of juncos flying around. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that name. That's so good. It's so much yeah. better than like seagulls or ravens <laughs> or pigeons. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So as far as like the whole journey, do you have like a favorite and a least favorite experience? As far as like Cascadia or game design or? If you want, we can do both. <laughs> but I was focused more on Cascadia. But if you have something that borderlines feel free yeah no i mean cascadia um i don't know if i have really like i think to pass what's favorite or not i uh, i will say that pax unplugged um the year that it was signed was my first experience being at a con at a booth like promoting a game and i mean it wasn't it was going to go to kickstarter what 11, 11 months after that. So it was still very, very early, but it was definitely, a, it was definitely a very cool experience just to be out there and have people coming and playing, getting demos on the one side and some sitting at a table and playing and talking about it. Um, it was, it was a lot, of, it was a lot of fun. And I was doing it with, with my friends at flat out as well as some other folks from, from the Seattle area who are out there working the booth some. And, uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun. One funny memory from that though, is that, the little demo table, you know, it's like, I don't know, three feet around table, kind of tall. Like little there. cocktail ones. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you'd be doing this demo and you'd have someone coming, walking up to you and you'd realize they weren't looking at, they weren't looking at me. They were looking like behind me. Well, that's because the calico cat was up on a big poster on the back of the booth. And so people would see the cat, the beautiful cat that Beth Sobel painted. And they didn't care about this game we were demoing. They, they were either like, what a beautiful painting. Or they were like, where can I see calico? <laughs> Oh, it's like, well, you know, we have other animals and similar art. <laughs> Come yeah. check this out. Oh, that's funny. So that that was that was kind of fun. Um, I don't know. I I I mean, you know, as a designer who's designed probably you know seven or eight pitchable games, you know, I mean, you know, I know you have experience here. The pitching process can be a little demoralizing at times. You can, oh, yeah. you can show you a game. You get so used to rejection. <laughs> exactly. You can show it to a lot of people and you're like, you're like, really? None of them thought it was worthwhile. Like I have so many people around me who like want to play this game all the time. And and yet none of these publishers care. And so, you know, I've, I've definitely, definitely seen that. And um, it can be tough because some publishers are better than others at like giving you good feedback. And by feedback, I don't even mean like, comments on the game but even feedback of just simply yeah we're we're not interested this time because of x or or whatever you know i mean some people get just like no nothing um and so that that can be that can be frustrating but it can also be really good to be working with you know it can feel really good to be working with publishers that do give you that great feedback or do say hey if you can make the game you know do this be slimmer be faster be this be that we'd like to see it again you know and and i really appreciate the publishers that do that um that either are that are just very objectively clear about where they yeah. are on a game you know say no this is this is a theme you know we're just not interested in um i have an abstract and i had a publisher just say oh yep abstract pure abstract nope don't even need to see it 
So no. <laughs> and on the one yeah, hand, but at least they abrupt. know. So it's exactly. like they didn't waste their time. Exactly. They didn't waste their time. It was abrupt, but it was clear. Um, so that, that was, that was absolutely fine. You know, on the other hand, I've had someone say, oh yeah, we'd love to play that on, on tabletop simulator, uh, contact us, you know, after the con. Oh, and then you never hear back never ever. Hear back yeah. Me. That is getting ghosted. <laughs> is just like a thing that happens all the time. And it's even better when you reach out to have a meeting at a different convention. They're like, oh my God, hi. And I'm like, I'm still waiting for your email. And I'm physically seeing you now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. incredible. Oh yeah, my gosh. Exactly. But, so, but you know, you, you kind of, you, you get, you get used to it. It's just, just the way it is. And, um, you know, yep. I, I won't lie. It helps to have a successful game. It probably doesn't sting quite so much. <laughs> um, oh yeah. So, yeah. Very true. Well then for all the designers out there, do you have any advice for them? <laughs> if you could pick like one thing to tell them? I don't know. It's funny. I, I've actually been asked this question a couple of times and, and I, it's like part of me is like, should I just give the same answer? Should I give different answers? Because there's all sorts of things that matter. I, I talked in the most recent one I did, I talked a lot about listening, um, which I think is, is really important as a play tester and as someone showing to things is, you know, listen and hear what people are saying, right? You know, it's, it's, you're not looking for, I like this or I dislike it. You need to know more. You need to listen to how it made them feel, what their reasons are, what they're doing. There's a lot of things. And and I think learning how to listen to, to players um, is, is really important. Um, but something different, I think, is, is passion. Um, there are honestly very few of us who do this as our career. You know, we have some other job that pays the rent um, and does all of this. And yeah. If you're going to work on something like this that is not doing that or doesn't pay enough money that, yes, you are doing that, but it's hard as heck, Yep, you should be passionate about it. If you're not, it's just going to be tough to do this as kind of just a grind. I personally have a hard time seeing that working for many people. And so if you're off saying, I need to design this game because this is what people want, but oh, I don't really like working on it, I'd be like maybe you shouldn't work on that, you know, look, look more for that thing that you are passionate about that you still think, you know, could, could be successful because I've found for me, it takes, takes a lot of uh, energy and passion around that work to, to keep at it. I 100% agree. Yeah. It is not easy when you have to keep banging your head against a wall on something that you're not that interested in anymore. Or even sometimes you have a passion project that has gone on too long and it needs to leave the house and go to college. <laughs> I've had a few of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah I know and it's funny because I have like like that Civ building game I keep threatening to go back and work on it again and likely sometime I will but it it has that feeling of at this point am I going to be able to apply the same passion to, to that that I did originally I mean I've got a lot more knowledge now I've got a lot more experience I think I've got a lot more skills at, at knowing thing you know dials to turn and things to do with games to make them work but will I actually have the passion for the game itself? And that, uh, that I think is, I won't know that until I actually decide to spend some time doing it. Unfortunately, with a game that big, it takes a bit of commitment to just jump back in and figure out where I was. <laughs> it's honestly impressive that that was the first one you started in general. So <laughs> you did mention before that you do have some games potentially coming out that you had signed. Do you want to talk to anyone about what those are just so we know where to look? 
Sure. Yep. I've got uh, a couple uh, that are going to crowdfunding this this summer. Uh, well, one that is the the, the focus is Tabriz, um, and that is a worker movement game about making Persian carpets. So your role as a player is the owner of a shop making Persian carpets. And you have some assistants that are out on the board, which can vary a little bit. It just has a bunch of different shops and traders and some uh, dice based kind of gambling or just you know shops that are dice based as to what's available and you know it's a round based game where you have three three workers and move them around and pick up uh, the resources to make these cards um it's a lovely theme i lived in iran for a couple of years as a child which is is why the game is themed that way and uh, i'm really excited to see it come out i've been fortunate enough to be involved to see the art come along and give feedback and um it's just really impressive um really really impressive uh kind of the opposite of beth who has of course done a lot of board games and has a lot of experience with games and you hand her something she understands games and she does something you go wow um this is someone who's a graphic novel uh writer and uh artists and uh, okay. so it's something new for them and i just think he's knocked it out of the park so i'm really really excited for people to see see some of that wow, work. i'm so jealous to grab all these like beautiful <laughs> games with their name on it <laughs> I, yeah i was really happy when i saw that so um and what's the publisher for this game uh that's crafty games awesome so yeah. Very cool. Um, I look forward to seeing it. Do you know yeah. when on Kickstarter? Like when during the year? I don't. I don't know that yet. They're still okay. trying to figure out the exact the exact date, working some things out. But um, I think it'll start getting some level of promotion pretty soon. I mean, honestly, we should know by now that don't ever run a Kickstarter before you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is this is true. So they're trying to figure that out. I I will. So here's my little whisper. The the boxes are on BGG. Search for Tabriz. You'll find them. <laughs> so I can see the artwork. <laughs> there you go. Get excited. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Box Inspiration Publication, episode 36, Cascadia. Thanks again, Randy, for joining us. But if anyone's looking to find you, where can you be reached on social media? Best place for me on social media is Twitter, where my handle is RF underscore Seattle. Awesome. And then if you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter as Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. So for our parting question, I want to know if you had a wish and you decided this wish was to put your name on someone else's game and you've now designed it, what game would you choose and why? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun and funny question because I you'd like I don't want to take credit for anyone else's work. But Oh, you're too nice. To you're doing is, it. Yeah. They don't exist. <laughs> my 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 approach to this is there's a game to me. Uh, I would I would call it my favorite game, um, and uh, everyone's going to know exactly what game I'm I'm talking about here is Concordia, and Concordia is the most like elegant resource based game ever designed in my mind, and there's a number of projects I'm working on that. I use Concordia as like that northern star. You know, there, there are things in this game that make it work so smoothly. It's just amazing. And I, I need to strive for that, that same level of, um, you know, just simplicity and understanding. Um, and I, I, I would love to design a game that came close to the level that Concordia has achieved. Well, you know what? You officially designed it according to this question, <laughs> but I love that. I, I can honestly say there's a handful of games that I use as my compass. I don't know if it's like I have one 
but yeah. compass for different yeah. directions I want to move. Well, thanks, Randy. I really appreciate talking. Thank you. And really enjoyed being here and talking with you, Danielle. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.